Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Greg Townsend, the Vice President of Business Intelligence and Analytics at Commonwealth Care Alliance in Boston. Greg's path to leadership in health analytics traces the coming of age of analytics in healthcare. Greg's educational background began in public health working with disease management and health promotion, which led him to roles in risk management and quality improvement, two fields that rely heavily on data. These early roles helped him develop the skill set that he uses today to support the Commonwealth Care Alliance's mission of providing health care to some of Massachusetts' most needy citizens. You are listening to the abridged version of the podcast that focuses only on Greg's work at Commonwealth Care Alliance. An extended version of the podcast is also available. The extended version includes a discussion of Greg's career trajectory leading up to his work at Commonwealth Care Alliance, and concludes with Greg's thoughts on leadership and his advice to people who are interested in entering the field of health analytics. Please see our website for the link to the extended version of the interview. Welcome to The Forge, Greg. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You didn't really stay with Accretive all that long. No. Uh, So a guy that I've known for a long time, Dr. Gottlieb, Larry Gottlieb, has... uh, I've worked with him at Harvard Pilgrim, at Health Dialogue, and he left the same t- around the same time I did for the same reasons, Health Dialogue, and he went to Commonwealth Care Alliance okay. in Boston. And um, he called me and said, geez, this is a great opportunity. Let me tell you about Care- Commonwealth Care Alliance. And, you know, I was there within a matter of weeks after we met. It was, okay. it, it was just the opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So this was 2011. Mm-hmm. And you became you were brought in as the vice president for business intelligence and analytics. I was brought in as um, or you, I was, was brought in as the director of clinical informatics. Okay. And my job was to build a BI shop, a business intelligence shop. Okay. Uh, so at the time, you know, Commonwealth Care Alliance was a small organization growing quickly and needed to really flesh out its. Uh, analytic capacity. So within a year, we built this BI shop, or two years, I should say, we built this BI shop, and I took the position I'm in now. Okay. So what was the opportunity? How was the opportunity presented to you? You said it really was so enticing. It, it is. It. it was, and it is. So um, Commonwealth Care Alliance has been around since about 2004, started by a cohort of people, including Bob Master, Lois Simon, and others who have had a real interest in changing the way primary care is delivered across the country. And he was able to, it's a long story, but he was able to convince Medicare and the state Medicaid office that, that if, if they would essentially turn the reins over to Commonwealth Care Alliance, that they would transform the way primary care is delivered to our most at-need populations. So at the time, that was our over 65 Duly eligible Medicare, Medicaid, duly eligible folks, who are who are obviously underinsured, or if not uninsured, 
and have huge gaps in their care in their terms of their primary care for a number of reasons, socioeconomic, you know, all sorts of other reasons that have to, that there are barriers to care. So when we talk about dually eligible, you, you were just saying both Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. So just briefly, uh, we've, I've, we've talked about Medicare and Medicaid a couple of times in prior podcasts, but mm -hmm. just very briefly talk about those two programs so that we understand what they are and how they're different. So the, the Medicare programs in, uh, on a state-by-state -state basis are, are really aimed at fo folks who have a financial need that, um, that meet a financial threshold in terms of needing and getting provision to and access to care. So it's mostly driven, although there are some circumstances where it's not directly driven uh, by financial need. And the Medicare program is obviously something that we all participate in. We pay into the Medicare program and when we age to 65, we become eligible for Medicare services. Okay. So this dual approach, right? So it's both the Medicare and Medicaid population who are duly eligible, both have a financial need and a proven financial need that qualifies them for the Medicaid piece okay. and are over 65 and, yeah. and as such they qualify for the Medicare piece. Okay. And you can also be permanently disabled and qualify Correct. for Medicare. So it must be a significant portion of your population as well. It is, yeah. So, so more so now um, because of our expansion into an under 65 population. So the core of our business had been up until October of 2013, over 65, duly eligible. Okay. A portion of those were a disabled population. Okay. When we now, through a federal demonstration project called OneCare, expanded to under 65, the proportion of our membership that's now in that disabled category is much, much greater. Okay. But all in all, the same issues apply. You have the socioeconomic issues, you have the, the, the fractured access to care issues. And what Commonwealth Care Alliance does is that we get a single payment from the government, from, from MassHealth and Medicare, and it's our responsibility to care for all their primary care needs. So we have an enhanced primary care model where we have nurse practitioners who are actually caring for members at their home. They do home visits, do all the primary care in their home. Oftentimes, if they have a primary care a clinician, it's in partnership with them. And we've seen, um, especially in our SCO program, the, the comparisons to traditional Medicare Advantage plans. What is a Medicare Advantage? Is, is, is a, it's basically Medicare HMO. Okay. So for folks who are over 65, they're in a Medicare Advantage plan. Traditionally, much less fragile, much more able to engage in their care needs. So when we look at the comparisons between a fragile and an elderly fragile community like we have in at Commonwealth Care Alliance in the Medicare Advantage plans, the performance in terms of readmissions, the cost of care, is remarkable by this enhanced primary care methodology. Okay, so you're saying they could potentially have both a primary care provider as well as uh, the nurse practitioner that you have going out to their home. Correct. So, so how does that happen? If, if they're signed up with, do they sign up with you? Do they, they agree to, yes, I'll get my care through? Correct, so okay. the, in the over 65 population, it's like any other plan. So yeah. we market and yeah. they find out about Commonwealth Care Alliance and it's offered to them. 
and they have to select in, so to speak. Okay. On the under 65 population, it being a demonstration project, there was a certain amount of, of what they call involuntary enrollment, okay. where, where you weren't required to do anything, but you were being put on the roles for receiving care from one of a few different plans who were participating. Didn't mean you had to actually engage in it. It just meant that you were qualifying for it and that these plans would reach out to you to engage in it. Okay, you mentioned a minute ago Medicare and MassHealth. MassHealth is the name for Medicaid Correct. in Massachusetts. Correct. Right? So the Commonwealth Alliance is a Massachusetts-based Correct. firm. Right? Just in Massachusetts. Just in Massachusetts. Okay. So tell me a little more about the, the, the it's, is it just primary care? So you get a, you get a capitated payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I ha- if I was seventy years old, so qualified for Medicare, I was poor, so that I also qualified for Medicaid, and I saw a, a, you sent me a, a letter saying, hey, you qualify for our, you know, to participate in our program. What would then? Ha- and I said, yes, I want to do that. What would then happen? Good question. So the the very first thing we do is an assessment. So okay. we'll, we'll 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 reach out to you and. It's actually one of the challenges with the One Care project, the One Care demonstration project, because a lot of the, the members in that population, the patients in that population, are homeless, and oh, wow. okay. trying to find them to engage them is often a challenge in and of itself. That aside, though, this, the the process is that we engage with the member, go out and do an assessment, a clinical assessment of their needs, both behavioral health and and medical health needs. And then we begin to write a care plan for them. So if they have a primary care physician, this is all done with in cooperation with them. We bring the care plan to them to look at the member, the pay, uh, sorry, the provider. We all agree on what that care plan ought to be, and we begin to implement that. One, one of the so you might be wondering why do they need someone, a, a nurse practitioner, to see them in their home and to a primary care physician? Sure. In most cases that some of these members are nursing home certifiable, most of the cases of our over 65 population, um, just by looking at the data, qualifies them to be in a nursing home. So it, it, if you think about that, there are transportation issues. A lot of times they, they do have some type of disability, physical disability that they can't get out of their own home to go see, uh, to make it to the provider's office. And that's where these gaps in care begin to grow because they can't physically access the care model that's been put in place. So even though they have insurance, essentially, and it's the Medicare and Medicaid that they, they have it, they just can't get to... They can't access even, even though it would be essentially free, perhaps, or close that's to right. free, they can't physically get there for some reason. Correct. Okay. So what you end up seeing is this uh, roller coaster of needs. So there's a building acuteness of their need by their onset or continued growth of their chronic condition or an acute issue happens, they fall, they end up in the emergency department and an inpatient stay occurs and then they'll go back and convalesce somewhere and until the next time it happens. And they get discharged, go back home. That's right. And then they get sick again and they still can't access and so. Exactly. Eventually we call 911 and. Correct. And it slowly degrades their overall health as well. Okay. So in this case, we evaluate the patient's home you know, if, let's say they're asthmatic. What's nice about our capitated model, there's nothing that we can't do. 
it's not that we do everything or mm-hmm. want to do everything. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's not appropriate either. But if we if we need to buy a, a patient a better air conditioner or a new carpet because their carpet has mold spores in it that's exacerbating their uh, COPD or whatever issue that might be, that's something that we can do. In traditional plans, they don't have the access to that because there are Medicare guidelines about what they will and will not reimburse for. Definitely not new carpets. In, in, right, I mean, right. Okay, but yeah. you could do that. You, right. Because so you've been given this pot of money and it's up to you to spend That's right. It. And our aim is to keep our members living at home and, and not in a nursing home. We believe okay. that that's the best possible place for our patients to be is in their own home setting and enjoying okay. their life. So you, you said it was for primary care. The, mm-hmm. the payment you received is for primary care. But what if you determine that this this person needs something more than primary care? Oh, specialty they're, visit? They're pri- what we deliver is primary care. What okay. we get paid for is everything. Okay. So, so you that are means responsible we're for everything. Whole, yeah. Their whole... A- anything that happens to that member, we're responsible for for covering those services. So inpatient services, everything. So you have a strong incentive to keep them out of the hospital. Correct. Because Absolutely. you pay for that if they go. Absolutely. Okay. That is definitely the case. Okay. So who goes to the home to do this this evaluation? Is it, you said, a nurse practitioner? Or nurse practitioner. Or team? Well, both. Sort? So we have, at times, um, we have nurse practitioners. We have behavioral health specialists who are social workers, LSWs, all sorts of other folks who wrap around, so to speak, the, clinician, the, the patient's needs. We have PTOT services, if that's what the patient needs. But it starts with the nurse practitioner to go out and, and do the assessment. And from that, the care team grows around the member, depending on what their needs are. We have a really great, actually back to my own roots, health education department, who also will do outreach. For example, we see some members who, quite honestly and quite sadly, are just lonely. They, they don't have, they're depressed. They don't, they don't have the experience in their community uh, to keep them motivated and moving. Uh, so one of the things that we'll, the nurse practitioners regularly will refer to is our own community-based health education efforts. Get members out into the community, even if it just means finding someone to walk with them a couple days a week. Getting, getting, getting them into adult day health programs so they can socialize with their peers. And so the, the, the impact of that from uh, the reduction in, in the onset and, and, and progression of depression has a definite improvement on their overall health needs. So we can be a much, lot more creative about how we, uh, how we choose to care for a member than in any other health setting, a healthcare setting. Wow. I, I could see where that, you know, just paying to get somebody from their house to a daycare center, for example, could potentially significantly improve their health status. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you take a big step back from all of this, Mark, what you see is a model that looks eerily similar to the accountable care organizations that, that are in Obamacare, right. right? So it's one capitated fee that you're paying an organization to care for a population. And that's actually what drew me to CCA, to Commonwealth Care Alliance, is that, boy, you can see this train coming down the track of, of how this new reimbursement methodology is going to change the way medicines delivered and, and paid for and managed. And this, this organization has been doing it since 2004. And to me, that was, from an analytic perspective, an, an enormous opportunity. 
So let's let's uh, we've talked about the organization and kind of its its business. What do you do? So we have an embarrassment of riches because of who and how we operate in terms of data. Okay. So when I was at Tufts or the Elliott, we had a ton of clinical encounter data to look at, right? You could manage and look at all that information, glean a lot from it. When I was at Harvard Pilgrim or the Blues in North Carolina, we had all the claims data, but we didn't have the clinical encounter data. So at where we are now, we have both. So we see both the clinical encounter data, the, the, the depth of that clinical encounter data in terms of what drugs they've been prescribed, how they filled it, all the lab tests, everything in between all their assessments done and all of their claims experience. And that's a huge wealth of information that we model in order to better understand what trends are going to take place in this population moving forward, what our care strategies ought to be, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, we use it also to inform our lobby and looking for uh, payment reforms and, and tr trying to get the CCA model of care more well known throughout the, throughout the nation and throughout the state, honestly, yeah. to, to show people that this model does work and is effective in what we do. Okay. So can you give me an example of the kind of problems that you've been solving using analytics? Yeah, so one of the things I didn't mention, Mark, is, is that in terms of analytics is that the CCA is growing, right? So we started as a small company with a dozen or so employees, and now we're almost over a thousand employees. Wow. And, and it has grown very quickly. And so you can, you can imagine the operational complexities that, that goes along with that doubled in size, tripled in size in October of 2013 overnight with one care, relatively overnight within the span of a few months. But so the operational logistics that that requires calls for the analytics to better understand how to, how to analytic capacity and reporting capacity, frankly, to move that information around, to put it in the hands of the clinicians in a more timely way, to inform all sorts of our the corners of the operation. So the BI group, we do a lot of out for, outward facing analytics to inform you know more more kind of high end strategic level analytics around um, where our model of care is going and what its impact is. But we also do <laughs> call wait times for our member our, our our member services call center. Everything in between. Okay. So we're a, a one stop shop for operational, strategic analytics, medical analytics, medical economics for the organization. So you say outward facing, that's kind of your telling your story to the rest of the world. Correct. But you're also generating information that can then drive processes exactly. in, inside the organization. So what kind of product, so you just mentioned one would be something like call wait time. So if I'm the call center manager, you're sending me a regular report saying, you know, we've observed this this amount of wait time, maybe some sort of outlier data that I'd mm -hmm. be able to look at standard deviations or something. Right. So, I mean, are, am I then, if I was the manager, do I have some sort of interface that I can go and look further at, and do more analysis? Or do I call somebody in your shop to say, help me both. identify who on, on my team is not performing or both. is an both. outlier? Both, or? both. Okay. So, so we, we, we've purchased and set up can systems that wrap around things like our nurse call center. So we have a telephone system that comes with an analytics suite. And so the basic statistics they can get on their own, 
not our nurse call center, I'm sorry, the, our member services center. The basic statistics they have on their own, they, they can look at right, right in front of them. But there's always the next question um, where that's requiring more in-depth analysis and, and diving into the information. For example, when we started OneCare, we're not reaching any of our members. <laughs> Why aren't we reaching any of our new members? They're, we can't get a hold of them. We don't have good phone numbers. When we call, they're out of service. We dig into the data, really drill down and say, aha, it's because these members are transient. They, they, there are a lot of them are homeless and they use track phones. And because of that, they're kind of disposable phone numbers. So we got to look for a better way of doing things. And what we did in that case is partner with our pharmacies, the pharmacies in the community. We know the member. We know that they've filled, they've filled prescriptions before in the past. We call the pharmacies. We tell, tell them who we are and that we should have this information because we're their provider now assigned by the state or they've enrolled with us. And, and then they can help us track down that member so we can engage with them. So just from that one question of how do we better get a hold of our members, the analytics that goes into eventually, and research goes into eventually getting a hold and touching the member in terms of an assessment. Okay. What does the phrase predictive and what does the phrase prescriptive analytics mean? <laughs> so, What's the difference? So prescriptive analytics has more to do with trying to divine an appropriate approach for one thing over another. So if the question is, should we do X or should we do Y? That the, the prescriptive analytics is going to answer that question. Much as if you go to your doctor and they assess you and say, you need this drug and not that drug. Okay. The predictive analytics is to say, we think this event may happen in the future. And so it's put it in the same analogy that your clinician may look at you and decide that, boy, you're in an early on stage, you're in the early phases of an on stage di uh, of, of diabetes. You, you need to change what you're doing, right? So it, it's more predictive based on what you see in front of you today. And so that's, that's the core differences that we, we use in, in terms of. In okay. those terms. How are you using predictive analytics in particular? Imagine that's where, is that, is that where the it uh, is. real money to be made is? It is. The, the money and the insight for sure. So we know we use our, uh, our own experience and experience that we get from the state for our OneCare members to predict where they're going to be down the road in terms of their healthcare needs. So, you know, we're, we're, we're just now beginning to understand more about what those needs are with more experience in the OneCare product, the under 65 population. We know a lot more about the over 65 population because we have a lot more experience with them. So <clears throat> we're able to look at it without getting into the details. We, we, we're able to look at it and we can say from day one to let's say six months out, Here's what the, a member's profile of utilization and cost is going to look like unless we intervene. And once we intervene, we believe, based on predictive analytics, that their, their experience is going to drop to X or Y. And so it gives us a, an understanding of how to prioritize members for outreach and what interventions we should take. Okay. You came into the field of analytics kind of just as it was really, seem, seems to me, it's just kind of... I, I agree. You, you've been there as it's been born and, and, and is coming into, its, into its, its maturity. How have you seen analytics become integrated into decision-making in organizations over your career? How has it changed? Yeah, I think uh, CCAs have really 
a good microcosm of, of, of the way the entire sphere of healthcare is going. So there, there seems to be no end to the appetite for need for deep analytics. And I think what's happening is because there's more interest in capturing more and more data points you know, across the healthcare industry, that it's led to much more available data for study. And you know, so almost back to the supply sensitive nature of things, you create the supply, the demand will grow with it. Sure. And I think that's what's happening here. And, and certainly the case with the onset of EMRs, uh, the more uh, portable information, if you will, uh, on the clinical side, tied with the claims information, set up against the need to better manage populations because of the trend for paying a capitated fee, is just increased the need for this, the understanding of how to manage a population well uh, exponentially. Did you face challenges from skeptics? And, and um, how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, you know, in, in my career or just at CCA? In, in, or in your career? In my career, yeah. So I think... I imagine it's changing. I imagine people are kind of being overcome by... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Being brought on board now, but yeah, probably a- earlier. Absolutely. And so it, there's, I can remember a number of times um, a blurry 7 a.m. meeting with the Department of Surgery going over post-op wound infection rates in, a, in one of their staff meetings and showing all sorts of slides and statistics and just seeing, you know, dead air. Not that they're not interested, but what they'll remind you is they know of every single post-op wound infection they have. So they don't need to be told from an analyst that this is what's happening. Um, and I think the same people now sitting in the same room have gotten infused with the understanding and imbued with the understanding that, that there's incremental knowledge that's, imp- that's, that's created by looking at data over time. And they're now coming to the table to say, don't tell me about that patient. Tell me about the trend that I've seen in the last 12, 24, 18 months and what I can do about that. And so I think what's ended up happening is the, 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 the pushback that we've seen from on the clinical side is, is, is dried up, both because it's, it's tied to their own reimbursement. And, and I think even beyond that, it's tied to their understanding that analyzing data in this way can lead to real substantial improvements for their patients. So that's one big hurdle that I've seen. I no longer have to beg a, a chair of a service to sit down and meet with me. It's oftentimes my phone rings in from them wanting us to, to be more and more involved. So that, that's a, definitely a seed change. Okay. Your position is, is tied specifically to analytics. Do you see a, a time when Analytics will just be another tool in the organization. So the, the the kind of very simple metaphor I would use is something like once upon a time we had typing pools and yeah and, and word processing pools and now everybody just does their own thing. Yeah. So it, it's it's one of the things I joke about constantly with my staff is that we, we are striving to put ourselves out of business, and in you know the same thing is true in, in quality improvement as well. So one of the one of the objectives in what we do is to bring information out to and in the hands and available to the end user so they don't need to come to the typing pool right they they can do it themselves in a word processor and so this it's the same approach that we're trying to build front-end tools so they can engage the data in a way that they don't need to be a programmer they can ask it questions and it will give them answers that reduces the amount of ad hoc 
requirements of the BI team and we can do more of the advanced analytics. So much of what we're trying to do is to push out some of the day-to-day -day stuff that, you know, takes us 10 minutes, but if, if you pile a thousand of those things up, it's a, it's a big chunk of time. Yeah, that's all you wind up doing. Right, and push all of that out to the front-end user and, and have us reserve for the bigger, wider, longer-term analysis. Right. So in closing, if someone listening to this podcast thought, you know, hey, what Greg does sounds really cool, what advice would you give them? What should they be doing looking for training? Um, what skills should they be looking for? And kind of what jobs should they be pursuing? Yeah, so I, I think the, the, the one thing that I can see is that was most impactful in being effective in this role is to understand the operations of healthcare. It's, it's, it, 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 the, the room gets dark quick when you don't understand the way in which the analytics that you're doing impacts the actual organization's operation. So it's very hard to be intuitive and anticipate need if you don't understand an operation. So one of the pieces of advice I give folks that are searching to be in a role like this and, and develop into, a, into an, a fully fledged leader in analytics or something like that is to get involved with a corporate department like quality improvement because they see everything so by the very, or performance improvement, by the very nature of what they do, they touch every corner of the organization, from finance to clinical operations to supply chain management, everything. So it, it really gives you a bird's eye understanding of how the, uh, the organization operates. So when you turn your attention to really understand and, and spend time analyzing any piece of that equation, you understand how it fits in the partnering and adjacent uh, facets of the organization. So quality improvement for me is just, you know, it, it was a great place for me to cut my teeth in the industry. Neat. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, it was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast, look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.